0: Hey, you guys, welcome back to That's So Fringy Podcast. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Kristen.
0: And we are here today to talk a little bit about uh, JFK. This is our part two in our JFK series. Uh, Last week, Kristen did a really good job of just laying out all of the um, official narrative, all the things that we need to know about uh, the things that happened in the past um we, we didn't really dig too much into the official narrative, which is what we're gonna do today. I put together a bit of a slideshow for us to kind of follow along to. Um there, we're gonna be kind of conversational but also kind of teachy, uh, just because we have to be that way. So I'm gonna share this really quick with everybody and uh we'll go from and there. Again,
1: if you're if you're not on Spotify. If you're just listening on Apple Podcasts, you won't have the video, so sorry, I don't have much of a voice right now, but uh if you if you listen on Spotify, the video will come up or it'll be on our YouTube or our website with video yeah,
0: you'll find it and this uh, is the it's, one that you
1: want to watch the video
0: so we put a lot of time and energy and effort, and I can you know I can go down lists of people to thank for all of the. Information that I came up with, you know, I've searched the internet. I've watched video after video, listened to podcast after podcast. And, you know, we, at a, we get to a certain point where there's so much information that we, we have to start to piece some of it apart and try to remember that, that you know there is truth we just got to find it and it's and it's somewhere in there and so as we as we go through this there's a lot of credit that can go out to a lot of different people um by no means is this our uh definitive study that we put together this was a we're reporters in this you know like we've said many times we are kind of the news now you know so we we choose to give truth out to people so We're gonna give you this presentation and it's a lot of different people that have put time and energy and effort into this and this is a collection of that stuff. So um, as we go through, hopefully we'll get a really good background on what's going on here in the world. So I wanted to start with uh, Dwight Eisenhower. So you guys might see me looking up a lot. I'm trying to just follow along on my screen here. I've got multiple screens going so that you guys can get the best information possible. So Dwight Eisenhower, he was the 34th president of the United States from 1953 to 1961. And this guy was, he was in in the... uh, as big as you can call it a, a war monger, right? He's, he's part of the industrial complex, this military industrial complex that everybody talks about all the time. This guy was a big proponent in setting all of that up. I mean, he, he was the super supreme commander of the allied expeditionary force. So this guy I'm was sorry. like, what the head general of World War II. Like this, this was a big deal. Like when I thought the
1: Supreme Commander was in Star Wars.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, also in Star okay. Wars. But we've got a Supreme Commander. I mean, you almost have hmm. to turn on that De- Darth Vader music. You know, mm-hmm. this is Eisenhower, right? That's what we think of is the the war machine. Boom, mm-hmm. That's this guy, and he's setting up all of you know. During World War II, he's the guy that's calling the shots. He's the guy that's saying, hey, D-Day, it's happening, and we're going today. This is the guy that said go. And a lot of people don't know that. So as we're going back, we have to realize that there is – uh, people that were very monumental in setting up this assassination that we're, that we're going to get back to. And this guy was one of them because he uh, was part of this group, this cabal that we talk about all the time, right. That, um, was setting up the military to take over the world at that time because they wanted complete domination and so if you're going to do that you have to have strong military forces and you have to have this united front and so that united front came in the form of nato and uh, guess who was the supreme commander of nato come on i bet i bet somebody can guess it's eisenhower
1: i was gonna say darth vader
0: oh shoot! Yeah, well that would have been a good guess but it is Eisenhower, Dwight D. Okay. Eisenhower. He later becomes our president. But this was the whole thing back then is you had communism right? Communism is this huge problem in the world or so they were trying to lead us to believe. Now, uh, some of us today would say communism is terrible. It's garbage, Marxism, socialism, all those different things. It's terrible. And, And that's true. There are some aspects to it that would be good. There are some aspects and there's lots of arguments that can go back and forth. But back then they were really, um, Pushing that com, it was basically like the United States of America, which represented all of the um, capitalistic uh, nations. You know, those that wanted to be capitalists versus the communists. You know, and, and you had all your derogatory terms and commie pinko and all these things. And that was kind of what the world was like. And so dwight D Eisenhower was a big part of that, and pushing that agenda because he was part of the war machine, but you also had a lot of other things that were going on did you had did you know much about the red scare
1: i did not i didn't, hadn't i mean I heard the term, but I'd never looked into
0: it as I was doing this research. I was thinking to myself, you know people like you and me have our age you know and and if you go into the analytics of our podcast, you'll see that there's a lot of people our age that listen to this podcast and give or take you know 10 years on either side but you know, how much does our generation or those after us, um, or even those a little bit before us, how much they even really know about this time of the world, unless they really research it, you know, because we only know what we're told. Maybe we're told in school. Um, maybe we've read some books ourselves, but have the books been tampered with all those things. So this is basically like the, the, the official kind of narrative of world problems that were going on back then. But we also know that there's always this underlying cabal factor to it. So we're going to start with the red scare, which was back in the fifties. So jump in wherever, if you have a question or whatever, babe, I don't want to just ramble talk, but this is what it is. So the red scare came in 1950 and this was all of the communist scare tactics, all of the things that you had going on in the world. Um, These big nations were pushing that communism was bad. And then you had these other nations that were saying communism's good. And it was this big thing. And here in America, specifically, everybody was just afraid all of the time of communists you know you had stuff going on uh with the cold war the soviet union uh nikita khrushchev was their premier at the time and he was really all about nuclear weapons and war and doing all of that stuff uh or at least that's what the narrative was and then you had cuba fidel castro had a revolution that he was trying to come up against the the current ruler and we'll get into that you know a little in a little more depth in a second, but, uh, and then you also had the race wars. I mean, you had everything that was going on in, in those days with, you know, trying to, trying to bring segregation to the, to the, well, to the United States and to the world trying to uh, you know give black people their freedom you know these these Americans that have been here that have been working and been slaving away and and have been fighting our nation's battles and all of those different things they were they were crying out we deserve our freedom we deserve equal rights and all of those different things obviously Martin Luther King was a a big proponent of that and this was a lot of what was going on back then and so a pretty not very well-known story is you know um martin luther king was arrested and went to jail because of a sit-in that he was having and they were trying to you know, peacefully protest, and he gets locked up. Well, Nixon hears about it, and he thinks it'd be a good idea for them to intervene. This is when Eisenhower's in office. He thinks it's a good idea for them to intervene and get Martin Luther King out of office, because that would look good for Nixon, because they know he's trying to be the next president, you know, and so he tells Eisenhower, and Eisenhower basically just ignores him, Tells him it's not a big deal. It's none of his business because it's not. He doesn't care about black people. He cares about war, and so he he uh, Nixon just doesn't do anything about it because he doesn't have the support. Well, Kennedy finds out about it, and he actually helps to get JFK out of prison that time. Not so JFK,
1: he is JFK, Martin Luther King
0: i'm sorry get jfk
1: out of prison (laughs)
0: Uh, my bad yeah martin luther king out of prison so jfk had the opportunity to do something and he did something whereas eisenhower had the opportunity did nothing and so that just goes to show you a shift of policy a shift of mindset a shift of all of that when kennedy's taking office because this war machine they wanted there to be race wars they wanted there to be all of this cold war scare tactics propaganda
1: constant conflict basically yeah
0: i mean i mean people
1: are fighting amongst themselves then they're much easier to control right it's like a house divided it's it can't stand.
0: Yeah, and you're not going to be able to have a, a, a country rise up against their leaders mm-hmm. if they're if they're fighting against each other, right? This is right. where they and if always want. One side want is
1: you. going, "Oh, it's the Russians," and the other side is saying, "Oh, it's China," and you know, it's this constant yeah. like pointing the finger at somebody else when really they should be pointing the finger back at our own commander in chief.
0: Exactly the the war machine, right? <laughs> And so that's kind of what's going on in the world at the time. You know, additionally, when uh, Kennedy finally gets in office, he has all kinds of issues come up too. So this guy can't get a break, right? He comes into office and most people don't really don't know the things that the president knows until they get sworn in and they, then they get read in to all of the things. So I'm sure if you, i mean you can think about all the things that the cia were doing back then all the things that the nsa were doing all of these things you're going to find out about i mean if they had aliens if they had craft if they had all that stuff he's getting read in on all of it i would assume unless they have really black projects but for the most part the president knows a lot of stuff that's going on there are some black projects that even the president doesn't know about but that being said, you could imagine this overwhelming you know, wave of information that comes to a president as soon as he gets read into all this stuff. And then he realizes that they've got all of these problems going on, and, and I'm sure he's been keeping up with it, but now he's getting to know the intricacies of, intricacies of the real problems, the behind-the-scenes stuff. And then this Bay of Pigs uh, incident comes up. So remember back a long time ago we talked about um it was this secret meeting that, that Kennedy had with the CIA, basically, where they were trying to convince him to do the false flag. This is kind of when we first introduced the false flag, which I was think the, It was
1: in one of our uh, CIA series episodes.
0: Yeah, because we it talking, was a, we talked
1: just briefly about the Bay of Pigs incident.
0: Yeah, it was a, like a declassified document yeah. that talked about yeah. this meeting where they were, the CIA met with Kennedy and they said, this is what we want to do. We have this, uh, group of guerrilla fighters that we've trained and that we control. We're going to send them in and they're going to be this force that's going to come in and, uh, basically hopefully turn the tide of this revolution because what, what the secret cabal government was worried about was all of the money and things that were coming out of Cuba for them. They had casinos. That's what a lot of people don't know: is you had a lot of uh, stuff going on with Cuba making the United States a lot of money, and so all of those corporations and those big businesses didn't want to relinquish really any of that. And so having control of Cuba was a good thing for them. So this revolution was really being uh fidel castro trying to take back his country from this cabal these cabalist actors when what was really happening was the guy that was in charge of cuba at the time was in bed with the cia already and so they had to squash that and And so when Fidel Castro was rising up, the CIA sent these guys in there. This was the Bay of Pigs. So in April 1961, a short few months after his administration, Kennedy authorized a clandestine invasion of Cuba by a brigade of Cuban exiles. The CIA Covert operation had been formulated and approved under President Eisenhower. So it was Eisenhower, the warmonger, that actually set this up.
1: Right. Explain to me the difference, because it says that it was approved under Eisenhower, but it was authorized by Mm -hmm. Kennedy. So those are two different things, meaning the plan was approved. Like, yeah, you guys can go and do this. And then the action of it was authorized by Kennedy.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, so essentially, they they drew up the plan, and Eisenhower checked it off. But in the time frame of it, he was leaving office, Mm -hmm. and Kennedy was coming into office. So once Kennedy,
1: that was on on purpose. I mean it it, that it just was conveniently happened to fall into Kennedy's lap,
0: or it is very interesting that you say that because setting him up to make a decision like this that's already been pre-packaged right. pre-approved is something that the CIA would do because it's mm-hmm. very tricky you have to think about and as we as we go on and talk about more of the jFK assassination and I'm going to show you guys some graphs and our you know all kinds of math and things like that we're we're going to be talking about angles and whatever later on, but you have to understand that the CIA is an intelligence operation. And back then the intelligence agencies were starting to take over the world. And a lot of people don't realize that as they got too big for their britches and they started making, who these was it back-
1: that was talking about this, having the CIA go back to just being gathering intelligence for the president. That's what they were mm-hmm. supposed to be. And that they're not supposed to be, an active participant in these kinds of things. They're yeah. supposed to collect information and take it to the president.
0: Yeah. It's reconnaissance guys. We're not, right. we're not doing actionable stuff, but that's what they were doing. They were doing actionable stuff. Obviously. And it, I think that was Truman that said that that was, well, Truman set them up. He set up the CIA in the beginning. And then after JFK's assassination is when he actually said, we i need think to get that, back to yeah we need to get back to them just being the in intelligence arm of the yes. executive branch is what yes. he said um because they're not supposed to be doing all this other stuff because you right. have to realize they've gotten in bed with everybody now they're right. now they're starting to work country by country these intelligence operate operators are working behind the scenes um almost like stagecraft they call it spycraft but it's it's tradecraft spycraft stagecraft is really what it is if you think about how they do things in hollywood is they they make you look one way and they're doing something over here and you'll see that when we go further they're made they're wanting you to look here when we go there and look there when we're going here and it's all a uh, you know really quick on the timeline we talked about that everything was really quick on the timeline they wanted to get out of there get his body out of there and get him on um all of that stuff is is stagecraft it's tradecraft because it, you know it's it's modern day magic they're trying to move things around and and move attention so quickly that you can't focus on anything and so that's what happens. It's a huge, um, it's a huge problem. This Bay of Pigs, and it really gets um, Kennedy fired up, because he he has a big hit on the chin from this. Well, yeah. And-
1: Spoiler alert: the whole Bay of Pigs incident went horribly. It didn't yeah. go according to plan at all. It was, it ended up being a disaster. And so now Kennedy has this disaster in his lap. Mm-hmm. right after being elected and it yeah. really wasn't even his operation but he he took he took the blame for it because he's basically like the you know the buck stops at me so i'll take yeah. the blame for it but
0: what's good uh, on him for doing that but
1: right and then to the team he's like we gotta fix this problem and and that was when you get that infamous kennedy quote about the cia
0: Yeah, and he he uh, removed Alan Dulles at this Mm -hmm. time. This is when, I mean, talk about taking a blow to the CIA. If you if you have such a problem like this, you take responsibility, but you also do like you said, you follow through and you fix it. Mm -hmm. And he did. The director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was removed. Right. And what did he
1: say? He wanted to splinter the cia into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind yeah i mean he 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 made that comment in a in a press conference that's how fired up he was about it
0: yeah and a lot of people say it's hard to find that quote or he didn't say that it it's it's very well documented that he did say it Mm -hmm. in it but it wasn't um very well publicized in the media which oh shocker it wasn't publicized in the the media media
1: that's controlled by the cia
0: yeah exactly that makes sense All right, moving on. Let's see. We've got Vienna. So we talked about how this Red Scare stuff was going on. Well, Kennedy met with Khrushchev in Vienna because Khrushchev actually wanted to meet with him. He sent him a message congratulating him on his presidential win. He said, I hope that relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union can again follow the lines along which they were developed in Franklin Roosevelt's time. So he's really all about friendship and wanting to fix the relations and wanting to be peaceful. And he's also about the nuclear disarmament. I mean, obviously, this is a, not the direction that the cabal wants to go not even a little bit i mean the bad actors of the world are accumulating and they're they're becoming powerful at this time right all of these people are getting everything that they want and it's going just as planned and they're they've already gotten to the top of the of the heap the president of the united states they had the supreme commander in that was the guy he did 8 years and they, but it was time for somebody else to come in and i don't really think that they Pictured Kennedy winning, I think a lot like Trump. I don't think that they thought Kennedy was going to win. I think uh, he, it was a shocker to them, and I think it had a large part to do with the with the um, the black community and their love and support for him, and his love and support for them. I mean, he was just a nice guy, and he wanted peace. and I'm going to play that clip. Um, he he did a speech. A coronation speech at the American University in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to at the end of this episode, I'm going to play that entirely for you guys. And you can stick around and listen to it if you want to, or you can listen to it on your own time. But I'm going to play it in full. I want Because it gives you the historical context of where this guy's heart was before he was murdered. And so this was a slap in the face to the cabal, basically going over there and trying to make peace and uh trying to disarm the nukes
1: right because that, that was their scare tactic to keep everybody in line was was we have to you know i mean they were doing nuclear bomb drills in schools like we do around mm-hmm. here obviously we're west coast so we do earthquake drills and you know every school has fire drills so they were doing nuclear bomb drills and they're like get under your desk kids like that's gonna help in a nuclear bomb you know
0: yeah it's ridiculous it's to think get that your desk, desk. is going to do anything. Well, and that was the big thing, right? That it wasn't just that they were testing nuclear weapons; it was that they, there, this um, contaminant was getting in the soil. It was getting in the air. Mm-hmm. It was getting it was getting an, in the water. All of those things were a, a huge environmental mm-hmm. uh, concern. All of this missile testing—they were like, what is this doing to our environment? We have Mm -hmm. to think about our children. So we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this was at the height of the Cold War. For two weeks in October 1962, the world teetered on the edge of thermonuclear war. Earlier that fall, the Soviet Union, under orders from Premier Nikita Khrushchev, began to secretly deploy a nuclear strike force in Cuba. So he's moving his missiles over to Cuba, just 90 miles from the United States. Uh, Excuse me. President John F. Kennedy said the missiles would not be tolerated and insisted on their removal. Khrushchev refuses, uh, refused and the standoff nearly caused a nuclear exchange and is remembered in the country as the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this was 13 agonizing days, as it says here, from October 16th to the 28th. And the United States and the Soviet Union stood on the brink of nuclear war. But, and this was his greatest achievement, Kennedy was able to talk him out of it. And they were able to chill it out and walk away from it. And this was a, a right, huge accomplishment.
1: Says, why was Cuba so important at that time? You know, mm-hmm. Cuba was this country that nobody really cared about. But because it's location, right? They're only 90 miles away from the United States. So if they were to deploy a nuclear missile from you know, across the world, it's going to take a lot longer to get here. And, and, and that leaves more time for us to intercept it. Yeah. Whereas if he, if they fire off a nuclear missile from Cuba and it gets over here, it's going to be before anybody knows that it's coming, it's going to be so fast. So that's why, that's why the Bay of pigs and this Cuban missile crisis, they're all centered in Cuba because it was a very important, just geological part of the country at that time.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good, uh, setup for Dealey Plaza. So.
1: Okay, here we go. We
0: find our way in De- Dealey Plaza, November 22nd, 1963, as we said, Kristen did a great job of setting up the context of everything that we're talking about here. Um, but this information that we're going to go over now is just like I said previously, hours and hours. And this has been 60 years, guys, that it's been since right, this. Right. So People have people have dug into this, and as I said on the previous episode, this is the mother of all conspiracy theories. You,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you have people out there that have claimed to have solved this and that it's been solved and it's complete, and there is no question. These are the people that have done it. I, I'm not saying that what I'm going to present to you tonight is definitive. I'm going to tell you that from all of the research that I've done and everything that I've seen online... And everybody that's put their heads into this because we loved this guy so much and we wanted to solve it. This is what we've come up with as a community. So there was several
1: hours and hours and hours of research that we've done. Yeah. For this JFK stuff, just because there's, there's so many different theories. There's so many different options or, you know, everybody's got an idea about what happened, but, what we are trying to do is is get to the bottom of each of those theories and try to figure out why that doesn't make sense you know yeah. like oh you know this doesn't make sense because what about this what about this so what we came kept coming back to is this is the stuff that does make sense mm-hmm. this is the stuff that makes the most sense so that's how we're gonna present it to you let us know I know we get messages we get emails we get all all kinds of stuff from you guys so let us know what you think if you think that you know, we're off base. That's okay. You can let us know, but this is what we've come down to. This makes the most sense.
0: Yep. All right, here we go. We have Dealey Plaza and I've got pictures up on this. So like Kristen said, if you guys aren't watching on Spotify and the reason that we're so big on Spotify is because they've never silenced us. We've said whatever we've wanted to and they've never silenced us. Not even one time. Every other place, every other platform has silenced us or shadow banned us or whatever. So if you guys don't have a Spotify account, they're free. You can go on the Spotify and if you want to watch it there, you can do it on your phone and it's great. So you don't have to have YouTube and all that other stuff. Just go to Spotify, get a free account and you can watch it on there on your phone or on your TV. All right. That being said Um, I've got this presentation going because seeing these angles and seeing all this is very helpful. And so this is where all of the shooters are stationed. Now there's actually one more shooter, two more shooters, but we're going to get to those later. So these are the people that are stationed around. So you see the the Kennedy, um, if I'll have my cursor here. Can you see my cursor, Kristen?
1: The Atari rubber
0: Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna to have to explain it, which will be fine for podcasts. So uh, you'll have to just picture this in your mind. You've got Dealey Plaza, and you've got it coming. You've got the motorcade coming down, and then it takes. What is that, Main Street? Yes, yeah, coming so they come down
1: down Main Street, and then they turn right onto
0: right on Houston Houston Street. And then to the right-hand side is the county records building. So that's Mm -hmm. this white building, the county records building. On top of that, there is two shooters, and we'll go over those in just a second. And then what they're going to do is take a hard left, and this is important, this hard left that they take. It's not just a normal left, as you can see, but it actually kind of J-hooks back, and that's when they go uh, down Elm Street and then past the Grassy Knoll. We've all seen this hopefully, but this is just a, a picture diagram for you to follow. So that first X on the Texas s- book uh, school, and I'm going to maybe accidentally call it a suppository. I don't mean to. right? I've just I mean, done it I've been times. correcting this
1: all week. It's not a suppository. It yeah. is a depository.
0: Sometimes I get going and I but, accidentally... You know. So you guys know what I'm talking about. So the book... <laughs> depository uh is where they say that lee harvey oswald was in that top sixth floor uh corner or the sixth floor corner um yeah on the that would be the right hand side closest to houston street Mm -hmm. Um, there's also a shooter on the other side of the book depository on the same floor sixth floor <clears throat> but it would be on the left side of the building in the far. Which is
1: interesting other because window. remember, part of the official narrative is that somebody saw a white male in khaki garb on the sixth floor with a weapon, and somebody mm-hmm. else saw a black man up there. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so what you're going to find out is that there there are was several... two people
1: up there, and one guy you know it's it, it makes those eyewitness accounts seem a little bit more credible i guess yeah and, and all of this stuff you should probably preface it with all of this stuff is forensically provable when you look at all of the so when you look at the vehicle and you look at the gunshot wounds to the people you know this whole maybe three shots it doesn't hold water because there was a shot to the bumper there was a shot through the windshield like there. Yeah. The, if you look at the the vehicle itself, there's lots of
0: which they still have. It still exists which, today. Right. The same car has never been taken apart. It's never been changed. It's, it's it's under lock and key. Under lock and key. And it has all of the wounds sustained to the car were also highly documented. Plus, right. wounds sustained to concrete and ricochets right. and all of that stuff. This whole Daily Plaza was uh, combed with a fine tooth comb. Right. Everybody every an ounce of it was combed. So, so all of this stuff of
1: this. Is, is forensically provable.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So can you see a cursor oh, on there I can see your now? cursor now. Sweet. The I'm cursor has arrived. All right. So we've got uh, also the grassy knoll. So here we go. We're going to start laying out who is where or who's who list of people. Okay. So we've got, This guy, he is on the county records building. He is named Eladio del Valle. He's a Cuban national. So we're going to find out that Cuba's involved, the CIA's involved, the mob's involved. Because we've got these thousands of books all put together where everybody's saying, who was it that did it? They all did it. It was Cuba. It was the mob. So what this was, was a who's who of shooters. You have to think right. about, like, this is what pe- what bad guys live for. They want this type of street cred, right? And this is why so many people admitted to it as well, is because they want True. this street cred. And so there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of Cubans that are acting as security. Um, you got to think there's probably more security for these shooters that day than there were actually for the president of the United States.
1: Right, because I don't know if you have it in your graphs, but... When you look at all these Xs on the screen and where the shooters are, it's not just the shooter. That Each shooter had a secondary, mm-hmm. so they had a backup gunman, like a just in case, like a spotter. Mm-hmm. And then they also had what they called a radio man. So they had a radio man that was and then communicating with all the other...
0: Yeah, people they can communicate the with each other. They can communicate with people on the ground. Right. I mean, this was so. A there's full three people
1: per, for every X that you see on the screen, at least. So this was a huge, op- a huge, huger operation than
0: people. Yeah. More originally. huger. More huger <laughs> than you originally <laughs> much thought. Much huger. That's what she said. Next slide. Uh- okay, we've got this guy. His name is. Charles Nicoletti, and he is from the Chicago mob. He's a hired shooter is what he does. Guy is just a shooter. And uh, he is here in this building, which is called the Daltex building. This building is right on the corner, and he's on the second floor. So the second floor of the Daltex building. And he is actually the first shooter of the day first shooter of the day and we'll go over that in a second. Next shooter we've got here is this is actually Woody Harrelson's dad. His name is Charles Harrelson. Mr. He's Breschino. a hitman. He's a professional hitman. He's worked for the CIA, he's worked for the mob. He doesn't really care who it is. He killed a federal judge. Um, he's killed lots of people. You can go to his Wikipedia and Mm -hmm. see all of the cases he's been attributed to. He was the shooter on the grassy knoll that day. I know people are going to argue with me on that. I don't really care. This is what I've come up with. And if you have a difference of opinion, I know some people think there was another guy there. I hear you, but I don't think that that's true. I love you. Next. Um, he was the guy on the grassy knoll. So everybody says there was a guy on the grassy knoll. There was people running towards the grassy knoll. Mm -hmm. We know that that, there was somebody there. There was a police uh, scuffle over there. There was also a parking lot, if you'll notice, for those of you that are watching. There is actually behind this grassy knoll a parking lot. Mm -hmm. And this is a perfect parking lot to escape from. You can see you can escape right behind the book depository building if you just drive right out of there and so this was the greatest way to just bounce right out the backside and go the opposite direction of where everybody's running towards which is towards you so this was why they said he basically whoever was there got up put their rifle away and they were gone they jumped in the back of a car and they were gone out that back area and we're going to get into that more later but that's um charles harrelson And that's where he was, the guy on the grassy knoll. So, this guy, this guy's a real piece of work. He's also a hitman. He's a shooter. Malcolm Wallace, he's uh, a well known CIA operative. And he's also real tight buds with Lyndon B. Johnson, which is suspicious, if you ask me. But he's good buddies with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. And he happens to be in the spot that everybody thinks Lee Harvey Oswald was in that day. So, the sixth floor book depository on that corner is where they think he was, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Oswald was, but this is actually where William Wallace was, and we'll talk more about him in a minute, but I don't for, I don't know how much I have to tell you guys. Um, the Oswald story is a joke. He is not the guy. He didn't even hold a weapon that day, except for that pistol that he that he grabbed. And I think that was when he realized he was a patsy and he was trying to bail. He was trying to hide. That's why he went into the movie theater. So he's bouncing around from theater seat to theater seat. And this is where they find him is in that theater. And so he didn't even have a rifle on him that day. He wasn't involved. He was just a patsy. He was a setup from the beginning. And so that's where that was. So where are we at on this thing here? All right, now we are on to Fred or Frank. I'm sorry, Frank Sturgis. Frank Sturgis is a CIA operative and a hitman. He was also involved in Watergate later on with Nixon. Um, This is one of the. He was one of the plumbers. (laughs) Uh, Just an interesting tidbit. And so um, this guy has a long history of CIA work and doing different stuff. He also lived in Cuba for a little bit before this, which is interesting. So um, this guy was definitely involved, um, and, you know, it is what it is. So this operation is exactly what it was. You had, as Kristen said, you had had spotters, you had radio guys, you had contingency after contingency after contingency. And so you'll see on the screen here we've got – phase one, which is Nicoletti. Now, Nicoletti was the guy that was in the Daltex building. And you'll remember that's right there. I've circled it. It's the one on the corner. He's on the second floor. And what he does is he shoots from there and he's the first shot. And the reason that this is the most important shot and why I believe they picked it as their first shot was because of that J turn that they have to do that hard J turn almost completely makes that limousine stop because of the length of it. It would have to corkscrew all the way around until it's then going the other direction almost. And so he would slow down so much so that a headshot would be so easy right there, which is a wonder. So it would be
1: as he, as he turns left and goes around this, obviously you break, turn left and then you Mm -hmm. continue to break because it's not just a left turn it's like a like rick said it's like a turnaround almost Mm -hmm. so you would be going the slowest possible amount at this point which is which is what lines up with nicoletti's uh angle he would have had the the very best angle because they would have been going the slowest that they were going out of the entire motorcade
0: yeah so right there on that corner, he's on the second floor. It's not a high angle shot. It's right. a it's a pretty level shot. He's above all of the other cars so that he can see straight down on the back of his head. And for whatever reason, this guy misses and not only misses, but I think he has a moment of panic or something. I don't know if something startles him or he pulls the trigger or he's not in his scope. I don't know what happened, but I've shot long shots before. And I know that if your scope's off or whatever, you're going to hit, you know, you miss a little bit here and a mile away, you're missing a long ways off. So I think it was just, he was a little bit off and somehow, and he hit the back bumper of that Lincoln. And that was the first shot. That angle exactly is the angle that they've, found that goes directly to the back of that bumper when Kennedy was in that exact position. And so that's the phase one shooter. Now, that was supposed to do it, right? This is a one-shot, one-kill operation. If everything goes according to plan, all of the other shooters walk away. All of them. They don't have to do anything. This is a well, one and shot. And this
1: goes pull. to show that they had the official narrative set up before the event even happened because it was supposed to just be one shot, a one yeah. shot assassination. That and was.
0: Look at the angle of the shot. Look right. How far off it is. It's not very far off from an angle that you would need to produce from that sixth floor right. book depository. So it's a perfect shot. It, the guy is. Just misses. He whiffs. I don't know. Nerves, scopes off, whatever, but he misses. And so then what happens? Oh, everybody has a question about this weird umbrella man, right? Who is this guy in on a hot summer day in or I mean uh, a fall day in uh Dallas is gonna have an umbrella up like this? It's not a cloud in the sky. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing and everybody's been talking about this for a while. This guy shouldn't have an umbrella up like this, but he does and if you could see him there he's circled. He's got this black umbrella, he's dressed all black like a fed. I mean, it's this is just weird. Why is he here? Well, it's been speculated and I believe that this guy is the contingency plan notifier. So, these guys up in up in the top here that are shooting from up high They can't see where whether this shot's actually taken place and hit or not. So Nicoletti has no idea. And then there's a phase two. And the phase two shooters are coming from the grassy knoll. And so they wouldn't have any idea of whether the shot hit or not either because they're too far away. So they need this guy. They need somebody to radio this guy and for this guy to put up his umbrella and let everybody know.
1: Well, because this guy's down near the car, so he'll he would know if if Kennedy was actually shot in the right place or not. Right. So basically, he's a signal guy.
0: Yep. Right. That's all he to, is. He's to a let signal.
1: everybody else know if the umbrella is up. That means he hasn't been hit. If the umbrella is down, it means we're good to go. Everybody else can walk away. Take the rest of the day off.
0: Yep. This was a go/no go signal guy. Yeah. And you, as soon as you. As soon as I say that, for those of you that have been wondering for your whole life, as soon as I say that, you're going to be like, no, duh. Of course, that makes perfect sense. As soon as he puts that umbrella up, this happens. We go on to phase two. Phase two is the grassy knoll. This is Harrelson, as we said before, Woody Harrelson's dad and an unknown shooter. Nobody knows who this second shooter is. But what happens when that umbrella goes up is those two guys, Shoot at the exact same time. They timed it out with their radio. This happens so that everybody thinks it's one shot, right? Because we only have three to work with. Everybody remember that's the narrative. We have three to work with, and so that second shot is hopefully going to do the trick. So here's the So umbrella mull. goes up. Hmm. Harrison does his thing.
1: Both shoot at the exact same time, almost as if they knew. That when the mm-hmm. umbrella goes up, that's when you
0: shoot Weird. Yeah. And this is when Kennedy gets hit in the neck, in the throat. And you can right. see that. And that was picture. another
1: discrepancy we didn't really we talked a little bit about in the last one, but um And we'll probably go over this again later because we're going to go over some of the doctor's perspectives, the the, uh, doctors that treated Kendi that day. But Mm -hmm. uh, so an entrance wound is vastly different from an exit wound. An entry wound is a small hole. And then the way, you know, just how bullets work in the human body as it goes through the bullet fragments and. And an exit wound is much larger and and kind of you know hamburger-y. Like it's it, it just yeah. really destroys the tissue. But the entrance wound is it typically remains very small. And so he has a entrance wound right here that we talked about. And but they're trying to say that the shot came from the back and that this was an exit wound. But that is not how that works if anybody has done any hunting or anything like that that is not how that works an entrance wound is usually remains very small The exit yeah. wound is horrific yeah so the fact that this was still a like a little dime-sized hole in his in his throat leads leads me to believe that the shot came from the front which would have been from the grassy knoll and there is corroborating evidence from doctor the doctors that treated him that day that that said that it was it was an entrance wound they have the measurements they have everything and somebody came in and told them we're not doing this anymore this is an exit wound we're not talking about this as an entrance wound anymore we're not documenting this as an entrance wound anymore yeah. like put the kabosh on it
0: yeah it's crazy but this is what happened. You guys, the grassy knoll, there was somebody there. His name was Harrelson and he was the guy. And he's also Woody (laughs) Harrelson's dad, which is super weird, but that's the facts. And there's this other guy that's a little bit behind there. If you look over here where I have the question mark, that dude is unknown, but he's a little bit further back under the underpass here. They had a, A fence that kind of goes under here and that fence was pulled apart a little bit and he was shooting through there and that shot is where this bullet came from you can see the windshield was uh shot clean through it didn't hit anything else it went clean through the car and he missed so that's another miss so phase two
1: or that um, one in my opinion could have been who knows who? But it it looks more like maybe it was aimed at her, at Jackie, at the at the area that she was sitting.
2: Yeah, we don't really
1: know who all these bullets were aimed at, but
0: yeah, because it you're gonna find out it gets weird real quick. Here. Yeah,
1: it gets real weird.
0: So that's phase two, and the problem is the headshot that was supposed to come from the back missed the shot from the front. The two shots that were supposed to come from the front missed, and now they're in a bit of a conundrum. So they're in phase three, which is full-on barrage of the vehicle. This is phase three. It's basically one, two, three, shoot. You've got all of those shooters that we talked about from before in the back all shooting down at the same time. So the two guys in the book depository, the one guy in the Daltech on the corner, second floor, and then the two guys up on top of the county building were all shooting down at the same time. That's one, two, three, four, five shooters. It must have been loud in there. And, and we can confirm that because Roy Kellerman was one of the secret service guys that were there that day. And he said that it sounded like a jet sonic boom went off and that jet sonic boom was this it was five shots going off simultaneously at the same time because remember they need three shots they need three cartridges right and so this technically would have been three shots they could have still said three bangs the last one was the loudest but that's just maybe But they also
1: were remember we talked about last week they were were blaming a lot of that on echo Mm -hmm. and uh the the noise bouncing off of all these buildings right so it's hard to say how many shots everybody heard because it was chaos and there were shots coming from all over the place or because it was a ricochet sound you can they're interchangeable right you can say it was a it was the sound of of the bullets ricocheting and, and off of the buildings. And you can also say, you know, we just didn't know how many shots there were. It's, it's, yeah, convenient.
0: Yep. It's wild. It's so organized. It's crazy. And so here we go. We've got, you know, we have to explain all of these hits to Connolly now. We've got a, we've got a hit to JFK's upper back that we still got to talk about. We've got a hit in the window frame. We've got a rib hit on Connolly and a, wrist and a thigh. So we're going to go through all of those right now. So the first shot that hit, uh, Connolly was the one that hit him in the ribs. And that came from this Sturgis guy who was over in the book depository building on the sixth floor, but on the left side, he was on the opposite side of where Oswald was said to have been. And if you're watching this, um, you can see a picture I put up. You can see that the face that uh, he's making right there. You can see that he is just like blowing out air almost like somebody just punched him in the stomach or in the right, ribs.
1: Because he not only got shot in the ribs, but it like blew up his ribs. It like blew up that whole his whole side.
0: Five it of his ribs. Yeah. Yes.
1: It wasn't just like, you know, in and out. It, it, it did so much damage in there because that bullet bounced around and basically destroyed that whole
0: side. Yeah. And so that's the face that a person makes when they get shot in the ribs. And that came from Sturgis right over here, as I said. And then the second one that hit him was from Del Valle. And that guy at the angle that they did, all the math that they did, all the physics that they did, they said that that one came from this guy over here. And you you see his picture here. Um, It's the one guy that's on the top of the county building on the it would be the left side on houston street so he's up there and then uh let's see the the weatherford uh he's the guy that hit him in the thigh weatherford was um said to not even have been there um this day up on the up on the roof i mean he was said to have been down on the street by the sheriff's office, which was a lie, and it was later uh, said that he was on this building, which was the county building on the top, and he was told to go up there by his supervisor, and he took this shot, um, which hit Connolly in the wrist. Or, I'm sorry, in the thigh. So you have Del Valle. So all these shots came at the, the same
1: time. So poor Connolly yep. gets ribs, wrist, thigh. all at the same time
0: pretty much immediately and then you've got so
1: imagine getting shot in those three places with the sound of a of a jet sonic boom yeah like
0: crazy yep exactly and then you've also got um nicoletti who was the second-floor guy, the actual first-shot-miss guy. He whiffed on the first shot, which has caused them to be now on Phase 3, and he uh, shot and hit um, the window frame, which you can see this picture that I put on here. This is the actual vehicle. That's the picture, and that arrow is pointing directly at the spot in the frame where it hit. And that's the angle that it came from is where that car was in space, going back to that window. And then you've got Wallace, this guy, Malcolm Wallace with the glasses. Remember, he's the right-hand man of LBJ, and he's over on the book depository building, sixth floor, where um, Oswald is said to have been. So there you have it, all five of those shots and exactly where they hit. Surgis hit Connolly in the ribs. Del Valle hit him in the wrist. Weatherford hit him in the thigh. And then Nicoletti hit the window frame from behind. And Wallace was able to hit JFK, but in his upper back. And that's the bullet. So
1: there was no magic
0: bullet? There was no magic bullet. And if you'll notice, the point that we're at right now. We're in phase three and this is a shocker to probably the cabal and the CIA and the mob and everybody else that's involved is JFK is still alive Mm
1: -hmm. at
0: this point. Like he's not dead. So what happened? Like, how did they, how did they miss? How did they, Mm -hmm. I mean, they've so many shots. This guy had to have been protected somehow that day. Um, by some sort of a higher power because Uh this is insanity. This is is hired guns that are supposedly really good at their job doing Uh this in broad daylight for all to see on national TV and all they have to do is hit their mark. One well, well you know this from mark. being
1: in the military. You have a contingency plans for everything, mm-hmm. but it's very, very rare that the contingency plan has to be used, right? It, usually right. people do their job the first, that's what they've trained for. This yeah. is what you do, you know? So the, right. the contingency plan is, is typically not, doesn't even come into play. Those people get to just mm-hmm. walk away and go home.
0: Yeah, we and now we're talking
1: not only the first contingency, but the second contingency didn't work. And then, the th- so then we're on to what? Phase three, then we go on to yep. the final phase.
0: Final phase, phase four. And this is where the driver comes in because everybody up until this point has talked about the driver shooting Kennedy as the last shot um, because it doesn't make sense the angle that it comes from. It can't possibly come from any of those back angles. All of those bullets are accounted for. And so this guy, William Greer, is a Secret Service agent, and he happened to be JFK's driver that day. And he was tasked with driving. That was it. Somebody must have gotten to this guy because... Either he is in tune with his uh, surroundings so well that he um, was paying attention to everything that was going on, or he was just trying to drive on his route and, and and do security measures. But for whatever reason, this gentleman kept looking over his shoulder at Kennedy, directly at him. He looked at him twice. Now, I don't know why he would have done that unless maybe he's just trying to check on him. But when he looks over his shoulder the second time, he sees Kennedy in distress. I'm sure he sees Connolly in distress. And for whatever reason, he taps the brakes. Now, some people say that that could be just a reaction. You know, you see something happening in the back and you react by tapping the brakes. I've well, heard let's that. Let's
1: pause for a second so Mm -hmm. let's talk just briefly about so there the the main video that you see is they call it the zapruder film the guy's name was abraham zapruder i think Yes. so he's the one that is the video that everybody has seen a million times where you you know it's it's, you're looking at the you know right side of the car you see the car go through you see the whole thing happen Mm -hmm. and in that film if you watch it it's so there's a few weird things about it, which we might get into later if we have time. But for time's sake, the car is moving the whole time in that film, right? It never mm-hmm. stops. It's it's moving the whole time. But there's also another version of the shooting that comes from the opposite angle. So we have the Zapruder film that appears to be doctored. And here's how we know that is that there's another uh, video from the other side that is that is. Focused on the same car. And what you see is as the car goes through, the, you can tell that the car stops or slows way down. Because the motorcycles and the vehicles behind it catch up to it. So the Zapruder film being the official film that was put out for everybody to watch doesn't show that at all. It doesn't show the, the vehicle slowing or stopping at all. Whereas this other film does, it shows, and and this is what makes more sense when you really look at it, because, you know, everybody's got this kind of the same distance all the way down distance between the cars, and then all of a sudden, and that's how that Secret Service agent was able to then jump onto the back of the car, because the car slowed down or stopped.
0: Yeah, they so, were only going like 12 miles an hour, and you watch that Secret Service agent on the back, and he's, he's running for the car, and then all of a sudden, um, it, it stops. It just He's breaks. on the car. Yeah, he's on the car. He just jumps on because it stops. Right. And this wouldn't really be that big of a deal. Like I said, if he was just looking back, and he was attentive, and he saw that um, they were in distress in the back, and he stopped, but that's not what they're taught to do is right. what the problem is. They're not taught to slow down at all. They're taught to go 12 miles an hour. And that's actually pretty fast for uh, a motorcade to go through a, a group of people. You'll notice as you watch the film, they're not going slow. They're getting through and they're getting out of there. Normally that's how they normally drive. And so for him to slow down, that's against protocol. He's not actually, And especially to if do there
1: that. is any type of distress going mm-hmm. on, is somebody that's as highly trained as this William Greer, the secret service guy is not going to, they're not going to stop. They're going to, mm-hmm. they're going to speed up and get, get the heck out of there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would be protocol. And it, right. especially if you saw distress, you get, right. you get that vehicle out of there. Cause you don't know where the distress is coming from. So you, you bail, but he didn't, he turned, he looked twice. Um, I think he verified that he, after the first shot, I think he verified, and when he wasn't shot after the second, um, or I'm sorry, the third phase, then he realized he had to go to the last. Then the ball
1: was in his court, right?
0: Yeah. But not in
1: the way that you think.
0: But not in the way that you think. (laughs) And so here again, we have Dealey Plaza, and I know if you're not watching, you just got to follow along. Um, I put the car on here about where it would be when Kennedy took the last shot. And this is based on, as I said before, all of the research and everything. So, this is about where the car was. So, if Harrelson still was on the grassy knoll and the shooter was still shooting from the grassy knoll, which is what a lot of people believe, this would be the angle of shot, which is almost a direct sideways shot at the front passenger door. And as he's driving by, that would maybe be a headshot if he let him correctly. Okay. So this is about the right angle that you would need to shoot him. The problem is, is that not, that's not what the wound tells us.
1: Or what the motion of his body.
0: Or what the motion of his body tells us. So you can see that there's a direct 90 degree angle almost going directly at him. He would not hit him in the way that the wound tells us. Mm-hmm. And so we have to rule out the grassy knoll as as uh being the the shot that was taken to the final shot for, the phase four for kennedy shot. So I know that this one is graphic, and it's basically um, the last picture that you see right before they speed off is, is Kennedy being shot, and then he slumps over, and then he goes. And I apologize that it's graphic, but this is what they showed on national TV. Now, today in 2024, we're all very desensitized to this type of stuff. I mean... We have teenagers that are seeing this type of stuff all the time on on uh, their video games. We see this in movies. I mean, if you've seen um, John Wick or any of these movies, uh, this type of blood splatter and stuff like that happens all the time. But this is a this is a real human being, and not only was it a real human being, but it was the president of the United States in 1963. So the context is a little bit different. These people had never seen a head explode like this before, uh, not, let alone on national TV. A lot of people saw this happen, and a lot of people saw it for a long time after this. I, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that doesn't hasn't seen this video. And so this is not the video. I'm not going to play you the video today. We're going to play the video on the next um, episode. But this is the impact point. And the angle of the bullet, as they found it coming through the wound, make, the only way that it makes sense at this exact point of time is if the angle came from right down here, which is at the street curb level down by the front of the car street level. Now that's interesting. Yeah. Because you can also see that this police officer on the bike is looking in the exact spot that that bullet is coming from. And that bullet is coming from the storm drain, which we are going to talk a lot more about on the next episode. Bum, bum, bum.
1: hanger.
0: Yeah, so there's a little bit of a cliffhanger, and the reason for that is because I want you guys to be able to go back through and maybe watch this a couple times. Right. Get, and that was get, a
1: lot of information we just crammed in there. So yep. we just went through phase one, phase two, phase three, and and this is phase four that we're just getting into, and we've been able to tell you exactly where every shot landed, mm-hmm. and forensically, this is what this is what f- the forensics will, will tell you happened. Yeah. When you get the official reports that,
0: you know, have been suppressed. And there's been a lot of stuff that's been unclassified. That's how we know all of this stuff uh-huh. now. There's so many things that have been declassified. They've had, um, you know, they've had the Warren Commission. They've had several other different um, things, which we're going to talk about more in the next episode. Uh-huh. And 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 what the aftermath of this day, right? That all of the aftermath that comes, there's all kinds of screwiness, and we're going to talk about all those things. We're going to get into the wounds. You're going to get to look at the wounds. Unfortunately, uh-huh. it's going to be a very graphic episode. So you know you might not want to watch it with your kids if you ever listen to us with your kids i don't know but if you do this would be a time to you know have small eyes not not watching because there will be a lot of graphic information and you know we have to get to the bottom of what happened, and that's what we're seeking to do mm-hmm. and we we feel like we have a pretty good handle on it um, but we want your opinion and so we're going to present it to you in this way and hopefully at the end of this you guys can tell us what you think so
1: and we will go into on the next episode this storm drain that that we're talking about right now mm-hmm. that's on the screen yep why and and how we can prove that that this there was somebody there
0: we know exactly who the shooter is we know, we who know was, his name and
1: we know, and there was there was people that saw him afterwards there's a lot there's a lot to corroborate and you
0: you probably never heard of this person ever in your no. life 60 no. years later so with that guys we're going to we're going to put this one down for now, but I just want to say at the end of this, stick around and listen to this inaugural, I'm sorry, not inaugural. Um, a commencement address by President Kennedy at the end of this episode, and listen to it in its entirety because it's very powerful. The words that this guy is saying, mm-hmm. and then remember what we talked about and why they assassinated him, and and how they're going to try to clean it up in the next episode. Yep. But with that, we love you guys. We're so grateful for all Thanks that you for do sticking
1: around for part two. Like we said before, yeah. this could be like a seventy-five parter, but we're gonna we're gonna put it into three because that's. That's, you know, that's our limit. We, we've we've been mm-hmm. researching this for so long now that it's, we've yep. got to put it down.
0: Eventually. Well, and if you guys are liking what we're doing, I, I must say, I don't usually talk a lot about money, but if you guys do like what we're doing, this talks a lot of time. It takes a lot of time yeah, and energy. I do. I work full time. Kristen does a lot. You know, we have a lot going on. And, you know, if we had a little bit more income, I would be able to do a lot more. And so, you know, it's not trying to push anybody to do anything, but if you do feel led to give a donation and have more quality stuff like this, putting together presentations where you guys can actually watch and see these things play out. um, This is what we're capable of, and this is what we would like to do. So if you'd like to donate to make that stuff happen more often, this would be the time to do it. With that, we love you guys and we're so grateful for all that you do. Thanks for sharing and liking and sending this and spreading this message around. Don't forget that Jesus loves each and every one of you and we are going to get out of here for now. We are that So Fringy Podcast and we will see you in part three.
1: Part three. Boom.
2: Remarks of the President at graduation ceremonies of the American University from the John M. Rees Athletic Center on campus of American University in Washington, D.C., June 10, 1963. President Anderson, members of the faculty, board of trustees, distinguished guests, my old colleague, Senator Bob Byrd, who has earned his degree through many years of attending Knight Law School, while I am earning mine in the next 30 minutes. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pride that I participate in this ceremony of the American University, sponsored by the Methodist Church, founded by Bishop John Fletcher Hurst, and first opened by President Woodrow Wilson in 1914. This is a young and growing university, but it has already fulfilled Bishop Hurst's enlightened hope for the study of history and public affairs in a city devoted to the making of history and to the conduct of the public's business. By sponsoring this institution of higher learning for all who wish to learn, whatever their color or their creed, The Methodists of this area and the nation deserve the nation's thanks. And I commend all those who are today graduating. Professor Woodrow Wilson once said that every man sent out from a university should be a man of his nation as well as a man of his time. And I'm confident that the men and women who carry the honor of graduating from this institution will continue to give from their lives from their talents, a high measure of public service and public support. There are few earthly things more beautiful than a university, wrote John Masefield in his tribute to English universities, and his words are equally true today. He did not refer to towers or to campuses. He admired the splendid beauty of a university because it was, he said, a place where those who hate ignorance strive to know, where those who perceive truth may strive to make others see. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and a generations yet unborn Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace or world law or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must reexamine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war And wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. I am not referring to the absolute, infinite concept of universal peace and goodwill, of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interests of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, changing to meet the challenge of each new generation. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. With such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests, as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance, submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. And history teaches us that enmities between nations, as between individuals, do not last forever. However fixed our likes and dislikes may seem, The tide of time and events will often bring surprising changes in the relations between nations and neighbors. So let us persevere. Peace need not be impractical, and war need not be inevitable. By defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we can help all people to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly towards it. And second, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Soviet Union. It is discouraging to think that their leaders may actually believe what their propagandists write. It is discouraging to read a recent authoritative Soviet text on military strategy and find on page after page, wholly baseless and incredible claims such as the allegation that American imperialist circles are preparing to unleash different types of war, that there is a very real threat of a preventative war being unleashed by American imperialists against the Soviet Union, and that the political aims, and I quote, of the American imperialists are to enslave economically and politically the European and other capitalist countries and to achieve world domination by means of aggressive war, unquote. Truly, as it was written long ago, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Yet it is sad to read these Soviet statements, to realize the extent of the gulf between us. But it is also a warning, a warning to the American people not to fall into the same trap as the Soviets, not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side, not to see conflict as inevitable accommodation as impossible, and communication as nothing more than an exchange of threats. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements, in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union. In the Second World War, at least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. And even in the Cold War, which brings burdens and dangers to so many countries, including this nation's closest allies, our two countries bear the heaviest burdens for we are both devoting massive sums of money to weapons that could be better devoted to combat ignorance, poverty, and disease. We are both caught up in a vicious and dangerous cycle, with suspicion on one side breeding suspicion on the other, and new weapons begetting counterweapons. In short, both the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in holding the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interests of the Soviet Union as well as ours. And even the most hostile nations can be relied upon to accept and keep those treaty obligations and only those treaty obligations which are in their own interest. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. Third, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Cold War, remembering we're not engaged in a debate, seeking to pile up debating points. We are not here distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment. We must deal with the world as it is, and not as it might have been had the history of the last 18 years been different. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace in the hope that constructive changes within the Communist bloc might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. We must conduct our affairs in such a way that it becomes in the Communist interest to agree on a genuine peace, and above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. To secure these ends, America's weapons are non-provocative carefully controlled, designed to deter, and capable of selective use. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility, for we can seek a relaxation of tensions without relaxing our guard. And for our part, we do not need to use threats to prove we are resolute. We do not need to jam foreign broadcasts out of fear our faith will be eroded. We are unwilling to impose our system on any unwilling people, but we are willing and able to engage in peaceful competition with any people on Earth. Meanwhile, we seek to strengthen the United Nations to help solve its financial problems, to make it a more effective instrument for peace, To develop it into a genuine world security system, a system capable of resolving disputes on the basis of law, of ensuring the security of the large and the small, and of creating conditions under which arms can finally be abolished. At the same time, we seek to keep peace inside the non-communist world, where many nations, all of them our friends, are divided over issues which weaken Western unity which invite Communist intervention or which threaten to erupt into war. Our efforts in West New Guinea, in the Congo, in the Middle East, and the Indian subcontinent have been persistent and patient despite criticism from both sides. We have also tried to set an example for others by seeking to adjust small but significant differences with our own closest neighbors in Mexico and Canada. Speaking of other nations, I wish to make one point clear. We are bound to many nations by alliances. These alliances exist because our concern and theirs substantially overlap. Our commitment to defend Western Europe and West Berlin, for example, stands undiminished because of the identity of our vital interests. The United States will make no deal with the Soviet Union at the expense of other nations and other peoples not merely because they are our partners, but also because their interests and ours converge. Our interests converge, however, not only in defending the frontiers of freedom, but in pursuing the paths of peace. It is our hope and the purpose of Allied policy to convince the Soviet Union that she too should let each nation choose its own future so long as that choice does not interfere with the choices of others. The communist drive to impose their political and economic system on others is the primary cause of world tension today, for there can be no doubt that if all nations could refrain from interfering in the self-determination of others, the peace would be much more assured. This will require a new effort, to achieve world law, a new context for world discussions. It will require increased understanding between the Soviets and ourselves. An increased understanding will require increased contact and communication. One step in this direction is the proposed arrangement for a direct line between Moscow and Washington to avoid on each side the dangerous delays, misunderstandings, and misreadings of others' actions which might occur at a time of crisis. We have also been talking in Geneva about our first-step measures of armed controls, designed to limit the intensity of the arms race and reduce the risk of accidental war. Our primary long-range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments. To build the new institutions of peace which would take the place of arms. The pursuit of disarmament has been an effort of this government since the 1920s. It has been urgently sought by the past three administrations. And however dim the prospects are today, we intend to continue this effort, to continue it in order that all countries, including our own, can better grasp what the problems and the possibilities of disarmament are. The only major area of these negotiations where the end is in sight, yet where a fresh start is badly needed, is in a treaty to outlaw nuclear tests. The conclusion of such a treaty, so near and yet so far, would check the spiraling arms race in one of its most dangerous areas. It would place the nuclear powers in a position to deal more effectively with one of the greatest hazards which man faces in 1963, the further spread of nuclear arms. It would increase our security. It would decrease the prospects of war. Surely this goal is sufficiently important to require our steady pursuit, yielding neither to the temptation to give up the whole effort nor the temptation to give up our insistence on vital and responsible safeguards. I'm taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister McMillan, and I have agreed that high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty. Our hope must be tempered Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second, to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. We will not we will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Nor would such a treaty be a substitute for disarmament, but I hope it will help us achieve it. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us examine our attitude towards peace and freedom here at home. The quality and spirit of our own society must justify and support our efforts abroad. We must show it in the dedication of our own lives, as many of you who are graduating today will have an opportunity to do by serving without pay in the Peace Corps abroad or in the proposed National Service Corps here at home. But wherever we are, we must all in our daily lives live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together in too many of our cities today the peace is not secure because freedom is incomplete. It is the responsibility of the executive branch at all levels of government, local, state, and national, to provide and protect that freedom for all of our citizens by all means within our authority. It is the responsibility of the legislative branch at all levels Wherever the authority is not now adequate, to make it adequate. And it is the responsibility of all citizens in all sections of this country to respect the rights of others and respect the law of the land. All this, all this is not unrelated to world peace. When a man's way Please the Lord, the scriptures tell us, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And is not peace, in the last analysis, basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence, while we proceed to safeguard our national interests? let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interest of both. No treaty, however much it may be to the advantage of all, however tightly it may be worded, can provide absolute security against the risks of deception and evasion. But it can, if it is sufficiently effective in its enforcement and it is sufficiently in the interest of its signers, offer far more security and far fewer risks than an unabated, uncontrolled, unpredictable arms race. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace,